EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash insideems. So here it is, and once again, it's time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sabalero, and with me always is the other host. That's right, my good friend, Kelly Grayson. KG, what's going on? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. I'm, I'm happy to be part of our codependent relationship. It is a codependent relationship, and I am enabling you every week. <laughs> yep. Enabling you in a lot of ways, but you know, Kelly. So I think it's important we get right into the topic. Usually, we sit and we kind of banter back and forth, which is kind of like my. Uh, uh, it's probably the highlight of my. Uh, no, it really isn't. I couldn't even get through that. <laughs> no, I mean it was. It's it was, the low light. It's it the was, low light of your week. It was. It's it was far stretch. But I was having a conversation with somebody, and we were talking about the skill of intubation. Mm-hmm. And more and more, we are starting to see... Or the lack thereof. Or the lack thereof. Good, That's a good point. But one of the challenges that we're starting to see is that EMS agencies are making the move away from intubation in the field. Now, I, I, let me give you my background as to what I was doing when I was working uh, in my last position. Is I told the paramedics that they only got one look. And we mm-hmm. were going to attempt an intubation 100 times. This wasn't about your ego. You yeah. know where the landmarks are. You know how to work the tools. You go in there, you get a look, and you get one attempt. By my definition, or really by the medical director's definition, one attempt was as soon as the balloon passed through the teeth. That was an attempt. A look isn't an attempt. But here's one of the things that I, I like was, that philosophy. A, yeah. lot, a lot of people just say that uh, systems say that, that just inserting a laryngoscope is an attempt. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think it's. I think what you're yeah. doing is you're getting a lay of the land because theoretically, yeah. Kelly, I can go ahead and put the laryngoscope in and find out this guy is is severely anterior, and I'm not even mm-hmm. going to attempt. I'm not even going to try to pass a tube, right? So yeah. I think an attempt is when the tube passes the teeth. Anyway, and any systems that I've worked in. I've always asked the medical director to consider that the attempt, and and they've always been willing to do that. But one of the things that, and and one of the reasons that I went to that that, uh, methodology was to say, you know, you know it. It's not about your ego, and really, if you can't pass it, um, let's go to a rescue airway and let's worry about other things, you know. And let's not worry about what the nurse is going to say when we come in and say, oh, this patient wasn't intubated. Well, you know what? I intubate going down the road at 60 miles an hour. It's Mm -hmm. okay. But good airway management now has to come in place. But here's one of the things that I was thinking. As EMS systems are starting to move away from intubation, one of the things that we're starting to see, Kelly, is that there are more and more rescue airways that are really kind of worth the darn. I mean, we talk about IGELs. We talk about the King Airways. And since I was in a system and every the eight cities that were around – you know, are that we were responsible for, we had the same medical director. So in theory, 
if we were allowing the first responders to get on scene and make the determination that there needed to be an advanced airway and they placed a rescue airway, where was intubation mm-hmm. going to go in the career field anyway? As we start to think about this more and more, I think we are truly going to get to a place where intubation has no place in EMS, and I'd be interested in your thoughts. Well, once upon a time, you know, uh, the the prevailing attitude I saw in EMS is that most paramedics considered airway management an all-or-nothing phenomenon uh, or an all-or-nothing proposition. Uh, if you did less than a uh, than an endotracheal tube, that was the EMT's job, uh, and and rescue airways were for sissies, and and you only put in an oral or a nasal airway. Uh, to pre-oxygenate the patient so you go ahead and get the real airway. And, and it was all about the tube. Um, and that's not the real, uh, a realistic measure of successful airway management. Uh, I've said on this podcast before that airway management, uh, the gold standard of airway management, is an outcome, not a particular tool. Um, I think our skills are tremendously uh, degrading and rusting out at, at uh, endotracheal intubation in particular, um, in part because, like you said, we do have better options. Um, but... Uh, the problem is, is that even though um, we have better options out there, they're still not going to be sufficient for some patients. There's going to still be a small subset of critical patients that are going to benefit from endotracheal intubation. Um, we may not be able to identify them as well as we want to, uh, but we've all been in that situation where you needed an airway and there was nothing else you could, you know, th- there was nothing else that was going to work. Um, <clears throat> uh, the problem is, is, is so... When we encounter one of those, we really, really need an airway, yet we're less practiced at it than we ever have been in the past. Um, You know, I I think part of the problem is, is we had some institutional arrogance about our airway management skills. I intubate uh, driving down the road at 60 miles an hour, like you said. Or, what was, that, what was your, what's your favorite one? That you my, fall down the mine stairs is, and I can fall down a flight of stairs and accidentally intubate five people on the way down. Um, <laughs> I'm an airway samurai, but, and I say that in jest, I'm good at airway management, but um, A, I have my limitations like every other human being and B, not everyone is good at airway management. A lot of them think they can. Uh, so I think we're suffering from, uh, rust out because we're, we're using alternative devices and many of the patients that we thought would benefit from intubation. Uh, now we have compelling evidence that they don't. So those less than critical patients, uh, or those critical patients that can be managed by other means, we're not intubating anymore. Um, and we're, we're losing those opportunities to practice our craft. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our standards have sucked for so long, you know, for the longest time, Coamp's uh, standards for successful completion of a paramedic class was five successful intubations. Uh, it's getting better. You know, and and then they're starting. You know, they in recent years have started to really look at uh, at that number and and realize that it's totally inadequate. Uh, um, but the fact remains that there there are plenty of paramedics out there practicing right now who have done uh, five intubations on sim man or in a controlled situation uh, in an anesthesiology or operating suite, and that's all they've done. And then they do one every few months or God forbid once or twice a year. Uh, and they're just not skilled at it anymore. Um, 
I think we have to divorce our ego from the, from the equation. The question is, how do we do that? You know, uh, Brian Bledsoe said a long, long time ago, and I've agreed with him, uh, the entire time is that if we don't get better at airway management, uh, endotracheal intubation is going to be taken away from us. And we're starting to see the rumbles of that. Yeah. But I think it's a challenge as well goes to the individual. I mean, when we talk about, yeah. you know, I, I agree with you that there's, you know, that we have to be able to utilize a skill, uh, to keep it up. You know, I, I haven't intubated someone in a long time, but I got to tell you, if I had to put that Miller, you know, uh, Miller three in my hand and, and, and go to intubating, I don't know that I'm going to have a problem doing it because I feel very comfortable in my in my skills and in my knowledge of airway management. But I think that one of the things that we also have to be able to agree on is that the individual provider is not putting the, I don't know, the worth into developing their airway management skills. One of the things that I'll always ask paramedics, and I love to hear them boast about how great they are as being a paramedic, and I'll always ask them questions, you know, things like, uh, you know, what does the lemon law stand for? Or go ahead and tell me what a malampati 3 is. Or go ahead and explain to me what magnesium sulfate does in, you know, I mean, just things like yeah. that. And when they look at me with the deer in the headlights look, and I'm always trying to move them to the, to the you know, the process of saying, learn it. Where's your where's your knowledge going to be? So I think when we think about airway management, even though we're not intubating, Kelly, what is it that we're doing to grow our skills in, in a cognitive format? So where is your understanding of airway management? When do you really need to intubate somebody? How? When was the last time you used a bag valve mask and, and you bagged somebody all the way to the hospital? Not because you, you, you needed to intubate and you couldn't, because you wanted to practice your skill of using a bag valve mask on somebody and, and you know, take them to the hospital. Well, wait a minute, Chris. You know, if somebody needs to be intubated, we need to intubate them. Well, if you need to protect their airway, you need to intubate them, not if you need to ventilate them. Yeah, I, I'll agree with you. I, I think, number one, as I said, we, we've suffered from institutional arrogance uh, over our airway skills. Um, uh, another failing in EMS that we often see is that we're all about a tool and a toy and not about the education uh, and the outcome that results from it. You know, We're all about what we can do to a patient, what not not necessarily what needs to be done or not done. Um, it, it, it's we're, we're skills focused and intervention focused rather than uh, a, a broad body of knowledge. Um, so part of our problem is, is we focus on intubation when what we need to do is be experts in airway management. And that's a, that's a constellation of things you can do from your superglottic airway management to being proactive and managing people, uh, their breathing and, and respiratory and ventilation, ventilation status, uh, proactively so that they never get the point where they have to be, uh, artificially ventilated and so on and so forth. Um, you know, we, we see this all the time now and the, the device manufacturers, uh, bless them. They, they, spotted a market niche and they're exploiting it, um, but they know their market and no one wants to say, hey, we need to add a hundred hours of airway education to a paramedic class and, and double the amount of airway education for an EMT class or, or any of that kind of thing. What they will do though is they'll buy a $5,000 King Vision well, let me um, cut you because let me that's cut a cool you toy. Let me cut off your thought. I don't know that we have to add a hundred hours into paramedic school. I really think that needs to go to the organization. To the organization yeah. standpoint, because we can't learn everything, we can't master I was, everything yeah, in paramedics. I was throwing that out as an yeah. example, but here's the problem: 
um, using that, even if we put that on the organization, uh, we still are not getting adequate clinical experience. You send a paramedic school, uh, student to school now, and they're going to be fighting with anesthesiology, respiratory therapy, and nurse anesthetist students, and probably paramedic students from other programs, all jockeying for adequate clinical time. And there's just not enough, enough to, to go around in many systems. systems. So a lot of you know your bigger systems with strong medical direction and strong clinical support uh, and, and strong oversight – uh, and establish relationships with teaching hospitals can probably go do that. If you work for, for Podunk Ambulance Service uh, and your closest hospital is Podunk General uh, with 13 beds, you're probably not getting that, that amount of clinical time. Uh, and that's the situation where you probably need it the most here's in those what, rural areas. Here's the answer. I'm going to give you the answer right now. You know I'm all about answers. You know, I, I, I'm... You know, I'm that guy. I'm the answer guy. So they're all about that base. All about no that travel. base. About that base. About that base. But here's what I think we need to do, Kelly. And you and I have have been a critic about paramedic and EMT education for a lot of years. This is the way that I think we need to move in, into into the future of EMS. When you come out of school, when you come out of a paramedic school, and maybe the paramedic schools need to be ranked or rated according to the products that they are, are graduating from their course. But when you come out of the, out of paramedic school, EMT school, you're considered to be an apprentice. And maybe an apprentice has a certain amount of skills, Kelly. I mean, maybe, you know, your airway management is at the basic level and rescue airway. Maybe you're able to do... Uh, defibrillation. I don't know what that looks like. You know, maybe you're not able to put in EJs, but you can put uh, peripheral lines in. So, but then from there, I, I think it's up to the organizations now to develop a competency-based system that gets you to the next level. Let's say it's journeyman. You know, and I'm taking this model from when I was in the Air Force. I would come out of school, I was an apprentice, then I was a journeyman, then I became a supervisor. Uh, and I had certain qualifications that I had to meet before I was eligible to reach that uh, to reach that level. And then, you know, so when we talk about being an apprentice at a school and then going to a journeyman, this is where you learn your airway management. I mean, in-depth airway management. I'm talking about all the ins and outs and the art and science behind airway management. Same thing yeah. with, you know, maybe you have a basic 12-lead knowledge but now, as part of your competency, you go to an intermediate, you know, where you start to learn the, you know, the advanced bundle branch blocks, where you start to learn the hemi blocks, and then go into an advanced 12 lead, you know, in your next level. And, and so you take the time to learn all those things. I mean, what do you truly need to know when you come out of school as an EMT? What do you truly need to know when you come out of school as a paramedic? Do you have to be at the top of the scale, or can you take another year or two of on-the-job training with a competency-based system that allows you to work into your skills to get the knowledge that you need? Wouldn't we be better served that way? Yeah, I, I think so. And and the concept of, of paramedicine as a, a skilled tradecraft craft. Uh, like you described the apprentice journeyman master, um, is one that I've, I've heard before. And actually I think it has a lot of merit. Uh, the problem is, is, is employers and, and agencies are going to push back against that. And so it's going to take too long to create a competent paramedic. Uh, but they're, but they're, they're also locked into the, into the, the old, the, the paradigm that we have that, uh, we give them crappy education on the, in the, uh, or limited education in the classroom. And then we rely on, on the job training for the rest which leads to really crappy paramedics in some places that uh, with agencies that don't do 
good on the job training and really stellar paramedics uh, in the places that have that commitment to training. Um, so yeah, I can, I can totally see that. And, and I would be behind that a hundred percent. Uh, the question would be how to make that happen. Um, well, I don't me, think it, I, don't I think, think the, I don't go think, ahead. I don't think it does happen. You know, I mean, I think you've got to change the paradigm of a career field, but I, I think one of the things that I'm really trying to point out here is that the organizations have to step up. I mean, we're not going to, you know, you and I aren't going to go ahead and set against the whiteboard here and change the paradigm of EMS education, no. you know, on a half hour podcast. But I think what I'm trying to bring across to you the most is the organizations have to take responsibility for the growth of the paramedic and not just leave them willy-nilly to say, okay, go ahead and get the get the training that you think you need. Uh, go ahead and develop your skills. You know, and I go back to this one, Kelly, all the time, that the number one call that gives the paramedic the most trepidation is what? Uh, pediatrics, I would imagine. Okay, yeah, I mean, and they're all going to say it. You're absolutely right. Now, my statement to you is this. As an EMS leader... If I know that their skills are lacking in pediatrics, what am I doing to help them fix it? And if I'm not doing anything to help them fix it, and a mother hands a, a paramedic, a three-month-old, who's in cardiac arrest and, the, and screws the pooch on that cardiac arrest, I'm just as culpable as they are. So if we know that there are challenges, if we know that there are weaknesses, if we know that we have to help them grow their skills... What are we doing as an organization to help them become the very best that they can? That's what I think we can do. Well, and and I'll jump in here by saying, how do we go about doing that? What are the nuts and bolts of making that sort of thing happen? I think it starts first and foremost with uh, EMS agencies need to start paying their medical directors and not rely on volunteer absentee medical directors uh, and pay them as full-time employees um, or at least part-time employees with X amount of, uh, of hours contributed each month because any system like what you describe is going to be absolutely reliant on strong and active medical direction. Physicians have to be actively involved in shepherding the, the education and, and molding the, the skills uh, of the, the paramedics they supervise. Uh, there's only one way to do that is to, to pick good medical directors and pay them for their work. Um, this this paradigm that we've had for so long in EMS, where you pay a medical director, or or maybe not, maybe he just volunteers his his uh, uh, his time, um, and they're mainly absentees uh, who who exist to to serve a signature on paperwork, um, needs to be a thing in the past. Uh, and and if you look at all the places uh, around the country whose are the outliers as far as airway management. When I say outliers, I mean EMS agencies that are competent at it because truly the sad thing is, is, is those are the outliers now. Uh, the, bad, the, the people that can't manage airways are no longer outliers. They're the norm. Uh, the outliers are the people that are actually good at it. Um, and those agencies that all stand out from the crowd at, at being exceptionally skilled uh, at airway management all have really, really strong active medical direction. So that would be step one. Step number two is just change our paradigm, uh, change our concept of airway management and, and make it just that. It's about airway management. It's not about a tool. It's about an outcome. That I think that you know, I, you disagree with me, but I think that is going to require more initiative.
initial education. You need a broader, more holistic uh, approach uh, to managing a patient's airway and breathing than simply what tool to use in XY situation. Um, I, I think that's going to be necessary. And when you have that broader, uh, that broader focus and that broader scope of knowledge on airway management, then that opens up options for you. And you don't, you realize that the, you have, you have plenty of tools available and, and, uh, mastering the tool, uh, that's used at your particular service. Okay. Well, that's, that's fine for on the job training and, and developing your own people. Um, but until then you have to give them the knowledge base to make use of the tools effectively. Um, you know, when you teach someone to, when, when carpenters learn their, their trade, uh, they don't learn, uh, this is a skill saw. This is a hammer. This is how you use a hammer. This is how you use a skill saw. Now go build a house. <laughs> that's not how they, that's not how they're taught. You know, um, engineers don't say, okay, here's a slide. You know, you don't hand an engineer, here's a slide rule and a graphing program, uh, go forth and design a bridge. They have to learn the fundamental concepts behind it. And I think we, in, in EMS, we have kind of gotten away from that and we've been, become over-reliant on technology. Uh, the technology is nice and it certainly is another tool in the toolbox we need to make effective use of. Uh, but we have to understand that it is a tool and not a, um, a band-aid for our lack of education in the subject in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a lot of that's what I think. <laughs> but I, yeah, but I think you bring up a lot of great points there. And But one of the things that I want to, uh, you know, ask you again is I, I do think one of the – I. I do think the biggest Achilles heel in EMS is the ego of the provider. Oh, yeah. And it's I, all about, you know, measuring the size of your laryngoscope blade. You know, but I think that uh, well, a lot of those come pre, a lot of those come pre-size, but, oh, I see your point. I see your point. Um, you know, so, but I think that one of the things that we have to think about is how do we allow for a paramedic to feel comfortable within their skills without them thinking that they have to know everything there is to know about EMS. You know, we're creating the paradigm that a, a paramedic needs to have some egotism. And to some extent, I'll even call it that maybe we should have confidence in what we do. I think we have to have that bravado maybe, but we have to be able to make sure it doesn't cross the line of egotism. Well, we we turn people loose, and and it goes back to the the foundation being better initial education. Um, I can't say this enough. We're not going to be able to shape uh, providers and mold their skills and 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 build them up the way you're describing until we have people in the field competent to do that. The problem is the people in the field. Uh, that that we, we would rely on to do that, we're all shaped by the old, flawed, incomplete educational model. Um, so either it's going to just require a wholesale change or it's going to uh, require gradual change and attrition over the years, and this will be a generational thing. Years down the road, hopefully paramedics will be better educated uh, and and broader education than they are right now and take a different attitude toward training rather than just, you know, you get on the truck and they say, show me what you got, kid. Oh, well, you know, all that crap you learned in school is uh, toss that out the window. This here's the streets. Um, uh, if we can get away from that and get away from choosing preceptors who are preceptors by virtue of the fact that they managed to uh, hang around without getting fired 
better than anybody else, um, then, then the situation is going to continue. Yeah, I think that one of the things that, you know, when, when you talk about this and you, 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 take the, you take the position of the guy in the truck, you take the position of the, you know, the field providers, of the, of the preceptors, of the FTOs, and I got to tell you, man, I got to think that this is more of a systemic problem with the EMS leadership. And, you know, as you you set off to say, we have to have preceptors who, we have to have FTOs who, we've got to have the gatekeepers in the organization who, if I'm allowing that culture to precipitate in my organization, then it's not the preceptor's fault, it's the leaders in the organization's fault. And we have to be able to make certain that we, and here's the biggest mistake that I think EMS agencies make. And, um, you know, I believe this, that the, the workforce is the most important part of an organization. It's not the fact that I can read a budget. It's not the fact that I can do a project. It's not the fact that I can book a conference room. My leadership success is measured on the engagement and satisfaction of the workforce. And what we do is we don't, we don't give them the tools that they need to be successful. We don't give them the, the, the procedures and processes that help them be successful. We, we beg them to come into our organizations to help us be successful. And then once we hire them after we've invited them in, we stick them on a truck and say, don't cause any trouble. Well, yeah. you know what? Our organizations need to be successful because that's why we're hiring people. And I've said it before in this show, Kelly, and we've had a chuckle that, you know, my job as a leader would be easy if we could just get rid of the workforce. Well, <laughs> that's not that's not that's not practical. We're actually inviting these people into our workforce to help us be successful. And but I think that it isn't a preceptor problem, it isn't an FTO problem, it's a systemic uh, lack of leadership in the organization problem. Well, yeah, the, the problem is, and I've, I've written a column about this in the past, we have succumbed to the bigotry of low expectations. We have, we have let ourselves become mediocre because by, by the lack of leadership uh, and the low standards we set for ourselves, we have tacitly admitted that mediocre is okay. So we can't very well as a profession bitch about mediocre medics because we've set the system up to create those. Um, And if we want stellar medics, we're going to have to start doing something differently than what we're doing now. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. So email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and fellow airway maestro, Chris Ceballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.